cross without realizing that Jesus Christ is worthy of all that we are and all that we possess. Now, to finish the month of April out, I've decided to do a little three-week mini-series beginning today on exposing easy believism. Exposing easy believism. In today's message, our focus will be on what is easy believism and where it leads. It's my conviction that easy believism has been the devil's most successful strategy in compromising churches and rendering churches ineffective for Christ while at the same time deceiving them to think that everything is spiritually okay. Easy believism is giving intellectual assent to the truths of Christ, affirming those truths without surrendering to Christ. Easy believism focuses on what I get from God while neglecting what I am to give to God. It focuses on my happiness instead of God's holiness and glory. Easy believism results in many professions of faith, but it is void of God's grace to change a life. But because easy believism professes Christ and engages in religious services and activities, its adherents are lulled into a false sense of spiritual security. Now before we actually get into the sermon notes that you'll find there in the edge, I want you to see a church in the New Testament that literally was infected by easy believism. Take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We'll begin reading at verse 14. This is Christ's letter to the church at Laodicea. Revelation chapter 3, I'll begin reading at verse 14. Jesus speaking to this church, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, And neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may become rich, and white garments that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, 
and eye salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Now what I want you to see is the depth of this church's spiritual deception. Jesus said that their hearts were not hot with passion, with the passion of those who had been transformed by God's grace. But neither were their hearts cold like Christ's rejectors. Their hearts were lukewarm. They tried to embrace the blessings of Christianity without surrendering to Christ, which left their hearts void of God's transforming power and resulted in spiritual complacency. But notice, in verse 17, they thought they were spiritually rich. They thought that their ticket was punched to heaven, that they were in need of nothing. But Jesus had a totally different evaluation of this church family. He said that they were wretched, lost sinners, miserably deceived, spiritually destitute, blind, and naked in their shameful condition before God. Matter of fact, he said he found their lukewarm condition nauseating. He said, I will spit you out of my mouth. And did you notice that Jesus is betrayed standing outside this church. Standing outside this church that professed His name without possessing His life. Christ knocked at this church's door to see if anyone would recognize their spiritually bankrupt condition and respond in true saving faith. And beloved, sadly, I believe that this tragic scene has been repeated far too often in many churches, especially in the United States of America. Did you know that although our denomination claims 16 million members, there is never more than 6 million that are attending their key worship service. 16 million members, but only 6 million even attend the church's primary worship service. That means 63% of our members are never in worship on a given Sunday. Did you know that in America, roughly 4,000 churches every year die and close their doors. Did you know that giving per person in the church is proportionately less today than it was during the Great Depression? Let's just take our denomination, which actually has a better track record than most of the other denominations on this point, yet the average member in our denomination only gives 2.1% 
of their income to the Lord. Did you know that in most of our major denominations, and I thank God that this is not true of our denomination, but most of the major denominations no longer adhere to the authority of God's Word. And as a result, they have approved, affirmed sins like abortion, the slaughter of the most innocent and defenseless member of the human family. They've approved the sin of sodomy. Did you know that the divorce rate right now is higher inside the church than it is outside the church? Did you know that 85%, 85% of all the churches in America are losing members? 14%, at least 85% losing members, that leaves us 15 14%, 14% They are gaining members, but by transfer of membership. Just by virtue of people hopping from church to church. Only 1% of all of the churches in the United States of America are growing as a result of conversions to Christ. And beloved, the statistics I just stated deal with things that we can measure. How about things that can't be measured by us? What does Jesus see when he looks into the privacy of our hearts? What does Jesus see when he looks into our homes? Because the intents of the heart and relationships in the home are the true measure of authentic Christianity. What does Jesus see when he looks at the state of the church in America? A church filled with Jesus, passionate for Jesus, passionate to be the body of Christ, to extend his presence, to express his character, for his life to be formed in us, to be displayed through us, that a lost world might be reached? Or does he see a church filled with sin and selfishness and discord and division? How did we get in this sad state of affairs? And I believe the primary reason is easy believism. Easy believism, which has compromised our churches and rendered them ineffective. George Barna summarized it this way. Most of you are familiar with Barna. He's probably the most well-known researcher of churches in the country today, and also morality in the nation, and, and ethics, and trends. And he wrote this again uh, concerning baby boomers, which many of us are. And he says, at heart, boomers are consumers. Now listen very carefully. He said, the way we presented Christ to most boomers struck a resonant chord with them from that mindset. We told them that all they had to do was pray a prayer, admitting they made some mistakes, they're sorry, and they want to be forgiven. Boomers weighed the downside, which really amounted to nothing more than a one-time admission of imperfection and weakness in return for permanent peace with God and figured it was a no-brainer, a can't-lose transaction. The consequences 
has been millions of boomers who said the prayer, asked for forgiveness, and went on with their life with virtually nothing changed. Look now in your sermon notes at Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. This is Jesus' words. He's coming to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And here's the invitation that our Master... Our Savior, our Lord, extended to the hearers in His day. He said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and what's the next word? Many, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Now, look at the introduction. Notice, two gates that open to two different roads that lead to two different destinations. A choice must be made. The ultimate choice that will determine my eternal destiny, heaven or hell. That's the simple point. Of these two verses, as Jesus extends his invitation, two gates open to two roads that lead to two different destinations. Therefore, a choice must be made, the ultimate choice, and the choice you make will determine heaven or hell. Now, to gain a proper understanding of this passage, we must answer the next question that you find there in your sermon notes. What is the contrast between the narrow and wide gate. And it's so important to see this. The contrast is not between Christianity and paganism, but between Christianity, true, authentic Christianity, and easy believism. The contrast is not between Christianity and paganism, but between authentic Christianity and easy believism. In other words, over the narrow and the wide gate, both gates, you'll see the sign, this way to heaven. You'll see the sign, Jesus, the only way. In these verses, Jesus is not addressing irreligious people. He's not addressing atheists or agnostics. The astonishing fact is the next statement there in your notes. The many, in verse 13, who enter the wide gate that leads to eternal destruction profess to know God. That is absolutely astounding. The many, in verse 13, the many individuals who enter the wide gate that leads to eternal destruction profess to know God. Jesus is speaking specifically about people who profess to know Him. People who are confident that they are on the road to heaven. But in reality, they are deceived and on the road to hell. Now, how do we know this? We'll go down a few verses and look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 21, 22, and 23. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then notice the next word in verse 22, many. Many will say to me. Now, folks, you need in your Bibles to circle that word many in verse 22, and you need to circle the word many in verse 13 and draw a line connecting them. 
because it's the same group of people. The many people that entered that broad gate leading that to, that to destruction. Now they've come to the end of that road. They're facing judgment. They're looking to the face of Jesus Christ. And he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now let's just be very honest for a moment. Is this not a most terrifying passage that should cause us to be very sober? The many who enter the wide gate and traveled the broad road leading to eternal destruction are professing Christians. They sincerely believe they know Jesus Christ. With great fervency, they say, Lord, Lord. They are confident heaven is their final destination, and therefore no one is more shocked than they are when Jesus looks at them and says, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And notice, you who practice lawlessness. The evidence that there was never regeneration. They never experienced the transforming power of God's grace in their lives. They never became a new creation. They professed, but they never possessed His life. Think about that. Let it sink in. Again, many people who sincerely believe heaven's door will be opened wide for them as it slammed in their face. Jesus will condemn to hell many people who openly profess him and are active in church and even involved in ministry. How could anyone be so tragically deceived? The next Statement in your notes is the key, and it expresses what the heart of evil believism is, or the very lie of easy. The lie of evil of easy believism is that you can receive Jesus as Savior without submitting to Him as Lord. That is the lie in easy believism, that you can receive Jesus as Savior without submitting to Jesus as Lord. But notice, Jesus said, the only proof a person is saved is a life characterized by obedience to His Word. That belief that faith in Christ produces something, it produces a changed life. It produces a change in direction, a change in motive and values and perspective and character and conduct. Because, again, of that regeneration, that transforming power that comes into one's life. Look again at what Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
And then I think in your notes, the next two verses are combined, but they're actually two different verses. In Luke 6, 46, Jesus said, So why do you call me Lord when you won't obey me? And then look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And by this, by this, we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, if we obey his commandments, the one who says, oh, I've come to know him. I know Jesus Christ. He's my Savior. I'm going to heaven. Yet he does not keep his commandments is a liar. Now, why would Jesus put so much focus on obedience as the proof of saving faith? It's obvious. Because obedience is the only validation that a person has submitted to Jesus Christ as Lord. See, faith and obedience are the two sides of the same coin. We'll talk much more about this next week. They are inseparable. See, to say I receive... Think about this. To say I receive Jesus Christ as my Savior... without submitting to his right to reign over me is absolutely absurd. Jesus will never save the person he cannot command. Now the next statement in your notes really sums up the primary difference between the narrow gate and the wide gate. The wide gate, which is synonymous to easy believism, offers the benefits of Christianity while neglecting the cost. In easy believism, there's no repentance. There's no submission to Jesus as Lord. It's just about me getting my ticket punched to heaven as I acknowledge who he is and what he did. So the wide gate offers the benefits of Christianity while neglecting the cost. The narrow gate requires you leave everything behind to follow Jesus. You know, a great example of this, and we won't turn to it because of the sake of time, but the passage is there for you to look it up and read it. But Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31, gives us the story of Jesus' confrontation with an individual that's identified as a rich young ruler. Now, if you're familiar with the story, this young man had the right motive. If you're familiar with the story, he literally comes running to Jesus. And why is he running to Jesus? What is his motive to run to Jesus? He wants to know how to receive eternal life. I mean, this is, that's his question. What must I do to receive eternal life? And he not only had the right motive, he had the right attitude. He not only runs to Jesus, but when he gets to Jesus, he falls on his knees. And he says, good master, tell me, tell me, what must I do to receive eternal life? And not only the right motive, not only the right attitude, I mean, he came to the right source. He came to Jesus. And he also, as we've already noted, had the right question. What must I do to receive eternal life? Now, folks, let's be honest. In most of our churches today, in most of our evangelism, 
Folks, we would have had this guy praying a prayer, had his name signed on the dotted line, we would have had him baptized. But Jesus never adhered to easy believism. He confronted people with the call. So he puts a couple of tests out there for this young man. First thing he wanted to see is, did he really, does he really realize who I am and that he's a sinner and he stands guilty before me? So he says, why, Jesus looks at him because he asked, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said, why do you call me good? Because there's really only one that's good. And that's God. So he's testing. Do you really realize you're, you're speaking to God incarnate? God who left the glories of heaven and came to this earth. And then he says, well, how about the commandments? How about the commandments? And the young man says, what? Oh, since my youth up, I've kept all the commandments. What were the purpose of the commandments? What was the purpose of the law? To help man see his guilt, his need for the Savior. This young man never expressed guilt. He never acknowledged that he was a sinner in need of a Savior, in need of repentance, turning from sin to turn to a Lord and to a Savior. And then he gave him the ultimate test. He said, I want you to take everything that you have, I want you to sell it and give everything to the poor. He said, what was Jesus doing there? He was seeing if he would be willing to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And if you're familiar with the passage, the moment Jesus said that, it says the young man became overcome by grief, lowered his head, turned his back to Jesus, and walked away. Jesus would never receive anyone unwilling to submit to his lordship. Now that doesn't mean that as you grow in your Christian life you don't gain greater insight about what his lordship is just like you gain greater insight about faith, repentance, every area. The simple point I'm making is inherent in salvation is submission to Jesus Christ as Lord. Now sadly the reason many people believe the lie in easy believism, and the lie being, oh yeah, you can receive Jesus as Savior while neglecting Him as Lord. Matter of fact, I was witnessing to a young man. This young man was into alcohol and into drugs, a number of other things. I'll never forget sharing the gospel with this young man. I don't know that I've ever had anybody this transparent and this honest and he said, you know, I really like what you've just shared with me, but, but i got a question for me. And he actually asked me this question. He said, can I receive Jesus Christ as my Savior to forgive me of my sins, to have the assurance that I'm going to heaven, but at the same time not give up my friends and my lifestyle that I'm presently in? And I looked at that young man and I said, no. Jesus Christ requires that you submit to his lordship. 
But the reason many people believe that is that that is too often preached from our pulpits. Let me give you an example from a very well-respected pastor. I mean, I respect this particular man. I have gleaned much from him uh, in, in my life in ministry. I appreciate much of his writings. But this is what he wrote. Must a person make Christ Lord as a condition to salvation? It is imperative to trust Christ as personal Savior and be born again. But this is only the first decision. Acknowledging Jesus as Lord is made by believers. The decision to trust Christ as Savior and then make Him Lord are two separate, distinct decisions. The first is made by non-believers, the second only by believers. The two decisions may be close or distant in time, but salvation must always precede lordship. It is possible, but miserable, to be saved without ever making Christ Lord of your life. Folks, that statement is totally foreign to the Bible I read and the teachings of Christ. You know, this same minister came to the conclusion, actually said this, that it is a perversion of the gospel to invite an unsaved person to receive Jesus Christ as both Savior and Lord. But the real perversion of the gospel is the erroneous message that does not require to submission to Jesus Christ as Lord. Jesus, as I mentioned, never preached easy believism. He confronted people with the cost of following him. Look at just several examples. Luke 14, there in your notes. Whoever, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot, cannot be my disciple. Luke 9, 23. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Look at Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 and 38. Anyone. Anyone who puts his love for father or mother above his love for me does not deserve to be mine. And he who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And neither is the man who refuses to take up his cross and follow my way. Now folks, why is the language of the Savior so strong? Why would he use such offensive terms? Because he desires to run the uncommitted off. He wants to draw true disciples. He did not want half-hearted followers deceived in thinking that they were part of God's kingdom. Look at the next statement in your notes, which I believe just brings crystal clear clarity to this whole issue. But we do not need to make it complicated. Salvation is a gift from God. It is. But the gift is Jesus, who is both Savior and Lord. So you must receive all of Him, or you receive none of Him. Folks, don't miss the simplicity of that. Salvation is not praying a prayer. Salvation is Jesus. In Jesus is eternal life. It's receiving Him, entering a relationship with Him. 
That's the gift that Jesus is extending to you and I right now. The gift of His Son, Jesus. And folks, you can't look at God as He extends His Son as a gift to you and say, you know, I really like that Savior part, but I don't like that Lord part. So I'm going to get my ticket to heaven but continue to live like I've been living. Look at those next few verses that I think, again, brings clarity to this. Luke 2.11. I like the simplicity of this. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior. But who is the Savior? Christ the what? Lord. There's been born for you a Savior. Who is Christ the Lord? Look at 1 John 5, verses 11 and 12. These were the verses that God used on September 20th, 1970 to bring me to conversion. He says, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His, what? Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Look at John 1, verse 12. But as many as received who? Jesus. To them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So yes, salvation is a gift. It's not by works that we have done. It's by his mercy that we're saved. But the gift is Jesus. Go to the next statement down in your notes. Faith in a Jesus who is Savior but not Lord is a faith in a Jesus of one's own making. Refuse Jesus as Lord and you cannot receive Jesus as Savior. The only bridge that leads to heaven is Jesus Christ who is both Savior and Lord. You know, a great picture of easy believism is to imagine a bridge over a spanning a gorge, but half of it's missing. And you got this host of people traveling across this bridge just as sincere as they could be totally confident that this bridge is going to get them to the other side but in reality they're going to plunge to their death because it's only half a bridge you you can't divide Jesus you can't divide him you have to take the gift that God is offering and that gift is Jesus who is Savior and Lord look at this tremendous saying that is etched into this cathedral in Germany. Thus speaketh Christ our Lord to us. You call me master and obey me not. You call me light and see me not. You call me the way and walk me not. You call me life and live me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. If I condemn thee, blame me not. Look at 
that last couple of verses in your sermon notes, Luke 13, verses 23 and 24, Jesus speaking again. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter. They will seek to enter and will not be able. Well, why will they not be able to enter? Because the gate is so narrow that the only way you can get through it is to stoop in humility and repentance and leave everything behind to follow Jesus Christ. Without submission to Jesus as Lord, there is no regeneration, there is no transformation, there is no being born again, there is no salvation. The Savior is Christ the Lord. So, two gates that open to two different roads that lead to two different destinations. A choice must be made, the ultimate choice that will determine your eternal destiny, heaven or hell. So I extend to you the same invitation that Jesus extended to His hearers. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And few are those who find it. Would you bow your head right now? You know, you might ask, why would I preach a series like this? Well, as a pastor who loves his flock, realizing that easy believism is so prevalent and has so infected our Christian culture, I want to be responsible to share with you the true gospel. I don't want any member of Edgewood Baptist Church to go to hell deceived thinking they're on the road to heaven when they're not. So I simply encourage you right now in the privacy of your heart just look to God and say God right now I just want to put my life in your spotlight. And Lord, I I want you to examine my life. Just truly see if I am in the faith. If in receiving Jesus, I received Him as Savior and Lord and experienced true regeneration and transformation, becoming a new creation. Or was I one of those that simply made an empty profession without ever really possessing you? And that's why there's no passion in my life for Jesus. That's why there's no power in my life to overcome sin and to walk in righteousness. And the other reason I share this message is I want us as a church to preach, to teach the true gospel. And not fall 
into that trap of preaching an easy believism that gets a lot of professions of faith, but no chains of heart and life. So, Father, you know my heart's desire. It's not to disturb anybody's true faith in Christ. But, Lord, without a shadow of a doubt, the motive is to disturb, to agitate those that have been deceived by easy believism, who have professed you but do not possess you, And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone that has been deceived by easy believism this very day, you'll penetrate the darkness of that deception. That you'll bring them face to face with you as Lord, as God, as Savior. And that as you extend the gift of salvation in the person of your Son, that they would receive Him for who He is, Savior and Lord. And then, Lord, help us as a church to be true, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not to preach an easy believism, but to preach repentance. To preach submission to Jesus as Lord. So, Lord, speak to our hearts now. Have your way. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. I'll be standing at the front to welcome anyone that has a decision of any nature. Possibly you've been visiting, looking for a church home, and 